Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.8, The Last Jedi. Last time, many, many, many months ago, it's like two months to be exact, uh, we had some trippy visions on Korriban, talked about the cut droid planet M478, and had a fight with Darth Sion. Now we catch up with our old friend Freed and Ned in the Onderon Civil War for good, and discuss our most contentious topic to date, Brian Johnson's 2017 film, The Last Jedi. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, before we go on, uh, we got a little bit of podcast business. The hiatus is over, and we are back, baby. Uh, before we get going, we wanted to outline how the final four episodes of our KOTOR 2 narrative and our Series 6 wrap-up episode will be structured. This episode, 6.8, will cover the conclusion of the Onderon Civil War and an in-depth discussion of the relationship between KOTOR 2 and The Last Jedi. Episode 6.9, nice, will focus solely on the confrontation at the rebuilt Jedi Enclave on Dantooine and its numerous implications. Episode 6.10 will include the Battle of Telos IV, the mission to the HK droid manufacturing plant, and Surix duels with Darth Nihilus and Atrus. Uh, the KOTOR 2 narrative will conclude with episode 6.11, which covers KOTOR 2's endgame on Malachor 5 and Sirik's duels with Darth Sion and Darth Treya. And finally, series 6 will conclude with episode 6.12, which will discuss the cancellation of KOTOR 3, everything we know about that game really, uh, review the old Sith War era that lasts from 4000 to 3950 BBY, and begin the bridge begin to bridge the gap to the Star Wars, the Old Republic MMO. Knights of the Old Republic 2, Part 8, The Onderon Civil War. Since we're coming back from hiatus, we figured we should do a brief recap of where the galaxy stands. The year is 3951 BBY. The Sith Civil War and First Jedi Purge have been ongoing for about four or five years. The Republic still exists, but it's a shell of its former self and barely holding on without the Jedi to prop it up. Earlier in KOTOR 2, the Republic had one standard month left before it collapsed under its own weight and inertia. However, the Sith have not played to character. The eternal enemies of the Jedi have yet to establish a political power base, let alone a competing imperial government, even though they could have easily overwhelmed the Republic. As we've gone to great lengths to show, these Sith are not in it for a naked power grab. They are the Sith Triumvirate led by Darth Treya, Nihilus, and Sion. They lurked in the shadows, moving cautiously, but eventually Treya... Uh, Treya was betrayed, exiled, and blinded to the forest by her two apprentices. This allowed Nihilus and Sion to prosecute the Jedi Purge as they saw fit, and who boy did they ever prosecute it zealously. At the end of the Jedi Civil War in early 3955, there were, there were just under 100 active Jedi left in the galaxy. Sion and his assassins killed some, but the death blow came in 3952 at Qatar. Darth Nihilus had been tipped off that the Jedi were holding a conclave on the Miraluka colony and used his wound in the Force to consume all life and Force energies on the planet. 
In the process, more than 90% of the remaining Jedi Order was killed. The eight remaining uh, Jedi scattered to the corners of the galaxy. Jesus. Okay. The eight... Oh, God. The remaining Jedi scattered to the corners of the galaxy, and that's where things stood when the Jedi exile Mitra Surik returned after eight years and our story began. The opening crawl called the exile the last Jedi, and for good reason. Surik amassed 11 companions to rebuild the Order and save the Republic. To rebuild the Jedi, Surik has trained or retrained six of her companions in the ways of the Force, and is in the process of reuniting the last living Jedi Masters at the Enclave on Dantooine. To stabilize the Republic, Surik and her allies have ensured that the Telos Restoration Project will continue under the Athorians and that Dantooine remains a Republic holdout. If Surik can aid Queen Talia and Jedi Master Kavar in the Onderon Civil War, it will probably save the Republic. That is, unless Darth Nihilus goes off and does something silly like attacking Telos IV. So, when we last left our narrative... Surik had visited the Sith necropolis Korriban in search of Jedi Master Lana Vash, who was found dead within the walls of the old Sith Academy. While on Korriban, the exile also visited the tomb of Ludo Kresh, where she experienced four Force visions that centered on her past traumas, a choice she will have to make in the near future, and her relationship with Revan. Finally, Surik fought a brutal duel with Darth Sion in the Academy, but he has a nasty habit of resurrecting himself through pain and reliance on the dark side. After being cut down and coming back several times, Kraya begged her student to flee because Cyan couldn't be defeated on Korban. Thus, the group escaped to the Ibn Hawk and fled the Sith homeworld. Atten Rand piloted the Ibn Hawk into hyperspace, headed back to the Inner Rim to get some closure on Duxun and win the Civil War for Queen Talia on Onderon. Once that's done... Sirk can talk with Kavar and get him to join Zezkael and Vruk Lamar at the Dantooine Jedi Enclave, which is currently being restored. As we said, Sirk is currently surrounded by 11 companions on the Ibon Hawk. Atten Rand, Kraya, T3, HK-47, Kandris Ordo, Goto, Baudur, Mira, Brianna the Handmaiden, Visasmar, and Mikal the Disciple. Every member of that group has started their Jedi training under Surik, who recognized Force sensitivity within each of them. Surik also retrained Visas in the ways of the Jedi as she was formerly a Sith servant under Darth Nihilus. Surik's efforts to cultivate these six new Jedi are going to become increasingly important as they will form the core of the Order as it is reforged following the events to come next episode on Dantooine. After Surik speaks with Kavar, she will join the remaining Jedi Council at the Enclave in one of the best set pieces in Star Wars history. Surik believes that the meeting will allow the Jedi to come together as a united front against the Sith Triumvirate, but she grossly overestimates the Masters. Instead, the Jedi Masters will blame Surik for everything, Kraya will reveal her true self in an attempt to protect her student, and the Jedi Order as we know it will be unmade. The Jedi suck, and they're going to find out about it. And until next episode. The Ebon Hawk drops from hyperspace on the edge of the Onderon system before quietly descending to Tixun. 
the ship can't land on Onderon directly because the world is blockaded in space as the civil war rages below between secessionist forces loyal to General Vaklu and royalist forces loyal to Queen Talia. Vaklu's forces are bolstered by Sith forces both on the ground and in orbit, aiding with the blockade. At the outset of the Civil War, the planet had been equally divided between supporting Vaklu and Talia, but the General's heavy-handed tactics and military occupation in the intervening time have driven support to the Queen. When Surik was last on Onderon in episode 6.6, Vaklu declared martial law and his second-in-command, Colonel Tobin, forced the companions to flee back to Dixun. Uh, since that time, Vaklu has steadily lost military and popular support for his use of torture and assassination against suspected royalists and enforcing a strict military dictatorship with the backing of the hated Sith. Yet even as Vaklu and Tobin are bleeding both support and losing members of the military and police to defection daily, their stranglehold on ISIS grows because of the overwhelming Sith forces. Queen Talia and Jedi Master Kavar still lead royalist forces in the palace, but it is a last holdout against Vaklu. Whereas Vaklu's deal with the Sith had previously been top secret, the support is now out in the open, though only he and Tobin seem to know the Sith leader, Darth Nihilus. Ostensibly, Nihilus is lending Sith support so that Vaklu will win and Onderon will secede, causing hundreds of nearby systems to follow suit, which would in turn cause the final collapse of the Republic. Uh, of course, we know that Nihilus doesn't really care about Onderon or even the death of the Republic. Those are just means by which he hopes to bring about the end of all life in the galaxy, a fact that both Tobin and Vaklu will discover far too late. So, despite all the good work that the Companions have done to stabilize Telos, Dantooine, and the Galactic Republic generally, the Republic will still break down if Onderon falls. However, there is work to be done on Duxun first. In transit, Teethi receives an encrypted transmission from Kelborn, one of the Mandalorians in the hidden base on Duxun. Atten lands the Iban Hawk in the clearing. Surik uses some extra thorium charges to blow open those Mandalorian cash. This is before we, though, bah, those Mandalorian caches we briefly mentioned in our last trip to Duxun. Though Korriban only has one set of thorium charges that she that must be used to blow open Uthar Wind's old room, a merchant on Dantooine sells another set for the cache. We would tell you what was in the caches, but all the loot in KOTOR 2 is completely randomized, except for a one-named lightsaber and a few other pieces. When Surik and her companions make it to the Mandalorian camp, Kelborn has news about the Onderon Civil War. Master Kafar contacted Kelborn and was ready to meet, but now that deal may be off. In the short time since receiving that message, General Vaklu met with the Council of Lords and declared that Queen Talia was guilty of treason. Now why Vaklu would still need to use the Council of Lords after declaring martial law and using Sith forces to occupy the planet is anyone's guess. Perhaps he needed an air of legitimacy for his military coup. Regardless, Vaklu will attack the royal palace within the day, with Tali and Kavar having no chance of survival. No matter how many civilians and scattered military members Talia has, they can only repel so many concentrated attacks on the palace before their defenses yield. At this news, the Mandalorians begin cursing Onderon as a lost cause, but Kraya has other ideas. She knows that the Mandalorians have received scramble transmissions on Zuka's satellite that Zerk repaired the last time, and the signals originated from elsewhere on Duxun. 
The Mandalorians believe the Sith are operating from a base in the jungles, and Kryo concurs. The Sith on Duxun have to be neutralized immediately, or they will reinforce their comrades on Onderon, dooming Talia, Kavar, and their allies. Meanwhile, it won't matter what happens on Duxun unless the Royalists are reinforced because they won't last through the day without aid. Thus, the Companions must split up to save Onderon and the Republic. From here, Sirik must lead a trio of companions descending on Isis, and she must choose three more companions for the second strike team. Kreia will comment on the choices, though this has no bearing on the success of the mission. There's no canonical choice for the Duxun squad, so we will give Atten command of the mission and send along Mira and Baudur a formidable test for three new Jedi. The Onderon strike team must include Sirik and Kreia with the third member unknown, so we'll pick HK-47. With a plan in hand, the strike teams start their missions simultaneously with support provided by the Mandalorians gathered on Duxun. Because the missions occur simultaneously, the player controls the Daxun team, Daxun team first, then switches to the XL strike team on Onderon, so that's the order we'll use too. These missions are of critical importance to the future of the Republic and Jedi, but they are also important to our backstory on the show. For you see, the Sith did didn't just build their command center out in some random part of this godforsaken jungle. No, they built their Duxun base in and around the tomb of Frieden Nad. If you just joined us, starting with KOTOR, then you might not know that Frieden Nad was a Sith Lord who ruled Onderon from about 4400 BBY. Nab's the progenitor of the dark side theocratic monarchy that ruled Onderon until 4000 when the events of Tales of the Jedi begin. Nad's spirit was also responsible for the Frieden Nad uprising that briefly reinstated Darkseid rule on Onderon in 3998 and taught Alima and Satal Kido, leaders of the Krath cult, how to use Sith magic. Nad's spirit also started Jedi Knight Ulit Keldroma down his road to the Darkseid at that time. Though the uprising was defeated, Nad's spirit remained and would go on to turn Exar Kun to the dark side in 3997. After his conversion, Exar Kun finally destroyed Nad's spirit in anger while on Korriban before joining with fellow Nad disciples Keldroma and Alima Kito to prosecute the Great Sith War in 3996. You can hear even more about Frieden Nad and his stupid name in episodes 3.1, 3.2, and 3.3. Rand, Mira, and Baudur and their Mandalorian allies make their way to the Sith encampment, which is situated behind a mountain with a single narrow tunnel entrance. The Mandalorians agree to secure the escape route against Sith counterattacks and the Daxun wilds while the trio of companions push forward. Frieden Nad's tomb is only very near. But the way is lined with traps for the unwary. The tunnel also doubles as a minefield as dozens of mines block the path forward and also has a sensor beacon that will detect any being that approaches and avoids the mines. The only option is for one companion to apply a stealth generator belt, watch their step as they disarm all the mines, and finally disable the sensor beacon. This requires a companion who has at least one point in stealth to activate the stealth generator belt, some points in demolition skill for the mines, 
and some points in repair to shut off the beacon. This is why we brought along Bowder because she's a tech whiz who also makes things explode real good. Sure, we also like Bowder, but he's also has the necessary skills to complete the objective. To be honest, tripping the sensors doesn't change much because the companions will still have to fight all the Sith defending the tomb entrance, but disabling the perimeter sensor also shuts down all the turrets along the way too. The Sith really should have put some thought into their system's lack of redundancy, a recurring problem in Star Wars. As the companions clear the tunnel, they see a small alcove between the mountains and the nearby beach. We'll give it to Master Arkajeth here. This tomb is not easy to find, and ships wouldn't know to be able to spot it unless they knew exactly where to look. The tomb, which is made of onyx black Mandalorian iron, also known as Beskar, is an imposing structure built into the side of the mountain with two black spires jutting skyward. It resembles nothing so much as Darth Vader's castle on Mustafar in Rogue One. Outside the tomb, there's only room for a landing pad and a makeshift command center, but the entrance is heavily fortified with more than 30 Sith troopers, dark Jedi, and assault droids. Canon Alert 39. Though the word Beskar was canonized by reference to Mandalorian armor in the fourth season of Star Wars Rebels, the new Disney Plus show The Mandalorian gives us our first look at the nearly indestructible material. Though it wasn't called Beskar until later, Mandalorian Iron was introduced to Star Wars by Tom Veitch in 1994's Tales of the Jedi, the Freedonad Uprising. There, we see that Freedonad's tomb was built out of sleek black Mandalorian iron to repel, to repel would-be grave robbers. The material was said to be resistant to lightsabers. However, the next arc of the series, Dark Lords of the Sith, shows that while Beskar is resistant to lightsaber strikes and slashes, it could be penetrated by a prolonged direct stab from a fully powered lightsaber though that discovery didn't come without significant effort on the part of xr coon while the beskar shown in the mandalorian is silver or gray the ore came in a number of colors and was used in everything from armor to building materials now you might be wondering why arkajeth would build such an ornate tomb for a Sith Lord, and you'd be right to ask that question. Of course, Master Arca would never build a monument to the Sith. Instead, the small black mausoleum that Jeth built was corrupted by Nad's malignant spirit and the dark side. Nad's hatred, fear, and rage began to twist and warp the structure until nearby monoliths were pulled into the tomb, allowing it to grow taller and more foreboding. The twin spires jutting from the mausoleum are now tall enough to equal the height of the mountain that protects them. For comparison's sake, the tomb had a short staircase, and the structure was maybe three times the height of a normal human when Exar Kun made the trek there in 3997. Now it has a massive staircase leading up to the entrance, and the main structure is probably 50 to 100 meters tall. Where did the tomb get all the extra Beskar? How did this happen after Exar Kun destroyed Freedonad's spirit and finally sent it to the realm of chaos where all those who die immersed in the dark side go? We have no idea. It's never even referenced, much less explained. So let's just go with it. Huh. The attack on Freedonad's tomb is one of the most fun moments in the entire game. It's a non-stop onslaught as Sith forces of all shapes and sizes attack in successive waves that pour forth from the tomb. The companions face the most varied set of enemies in either KOTOR game in the skirmish. 
The tomb's entrance is guarded by Sith officers, Sith elite troopers, Dark Jedi, Dark Jedi apprentices, two Sith lords, and some Boma beasts they control using the beast trick ability Surik learned earlier. Just to clarify, these are Sith lords, big S, little s, so just a stronger version of the Dark Jedi with a slightly different skin. Sith lord, big S, big L, means bosses like Darth Nihilus and Darth Sion and other Dark Lords of the Sith in the lore. Despite these long odds, Atten, Mira, and Baudur have all become formidable Jedi in their short time training under Surik. Atten has become a Jedi Sentinel, proficient in both lightsaber combat and control over his Force powers. He's dual-wielding purple lightsabers. Mira has also trained as a Jedi Sentinel, is quite handy with a lightsaber and the Force like Atten, and uses a yellow blade, yellow double-bladed lightsaber that's taller than she is. Finally, Baudur has become a Jedi Guardian and thus focuses his use of the Force through superior lightsaber combat skills. He's using a single cyan lightsaber to match the color of his energy arm. The classes and skills for these three Jedi are all canonical in the Legends continuity, but the lightsaber choices are just a fun little bonus. And just so we're clear, the companions have been training as Jedi under Cirque for at most a couple of weeks since Atten is the first you can train, and that doesn't happen until Nar Shaddaa. Best guess is anywhere from three weeks to a couple of months. No big deal, just send in three Jedi who have intermittent had intermittent training for a month at most into the teeth of a Sith garrison and into the tomb of a Dark Lord of the Sith who is directly responsible for Exar Kun's fall, started Ula Keldroma down the road to his fall, helped Alima Kito become a master of Sith magic. That's just three of the four leaders of the Sith Crab Mandalorian Alliance that attacked the Republican Jedi in the Great Sith War. What's the worst that could happen? gonna have to work on that uh i messed up all i messed up that uh writing right there the uh meant to say at most a month not a couple of months so sorry about that i just noticed that error in real time uh of course that all depends on the player but since Zerg's a good teacher and this is a video game, the companions will prevail. Uh, you should never forget that the Force is a powerful ally. The battle outside can be tricky because it's easy to get overwhelmed when one of the companions the player isn't controlling just runs off and dies like a chump, which they always do, and it's you really can't even stop them from doing it, unfortunately. However, Atten, Mira, and Baldur are able to work together to defeat the horde of Sith outside the tomb. Much of the fight, much of the fight takes place on the long Beskar staircase that leads to the entrance. But after defeating the big group, the companions can relax. Well, at least until they open the door to go inside, and it turns out to be an antechamber to the mausoleum with more enemies, including another big S little L Sith Lord. I'm gonna have to quit using that; it's annoying me. After these guys, the trio of Jedi can finally enter the tomb. At this point in the game, the player gets to briefly control the exile in Isis before returning to Dixun, but we'll just come back to that part when we move to Onderon. Inside the tomb, a Mandalorian catches up with the companions and informs them that this is the final resting place of Frieden Nad before explaining his history via exposition. If Visus, if Visus Mar were here, she would tell us about feeling the pull of the dark side within the tomb as it be has become a dark side force 
nexus in the years since Nad's interment. The tomb is much deeper than expected, with a long walkway descending toward more enemies and some puzzle minigames. One of the fights is broken, and the other is a math question. I'm sorry, one of the puzzles is broken, and the other is a math question. So both puzzles are actually broken. Um, as the companions descend deeper into the tomb, they come to the door to the inner sanctum, but it must be unlocked in another room. This is where the dark side begins to tempt our brave young Jedi. Dark side energy pools on the floor, coursing with purple electricity. Uh, the player must interact with it to proceed, which will cause a dark side manifestation to speak to the player, tempting them with power. Waves of anger and hatred wave through the air in the tomb, but Atten, Mira, and Baldur hold firm before finally unlocking the big door that leads to the finale on Daxun. Within the inner sanctum, a large red sphere hangs low from the ceiling over a shallow rectangular pool of water. Sri Sith are gathered around the pool in the sphere, performing a ritual intended to aid the Sith soldiers on Onderon. Lightning and dark energy flow between the Sith and the large red sphere. Nad's sarcophagus is situated in the back of the room, having been moved to aid in performance of the ritual. At this time, it's unclear what the ritual was doing, but it's probably being used to control a gigantic beast that's being used to bash down shields during the joint Vaklu Sith assault on Onderon. This will make more sense momentarily. The leader of the ritual is an unnamed Sith master who joined the Sith Triumvirate and was later given control of Darth Nihilus' forces on Darksun and Onderon. As he's the only opponent called a Dark Jedi Master that appears in either KOTOR game, he was either someone important or just a title intended to make the end game a little more interesting. This Dark Jedi Master is quite knowledgeable about the Force and the wider galaxy. He says the ritual is complete and their aid means Onderon will secede after Vaculate's victory, causing the collapse of the Republic. Throughout the show, we've constantly referred to Goto's revelation that the Republic had one month left before collapse, and this would seem to independently confirm those calculations. Indeed, the Sith Master also confirms that if Surik and her team failed to stabilize each of Tila's four, Dantooine, and Onderon, the Republic will be immediately lost. It's nice to have confirmation the horrifying timeline we've been working with is accurate. This is why the Star Wars universe needs more peer-reviewed journals. It's also the biggest test for our three intrepid young Jedi, defeating a Dark Jedi Master and two other Dark Jedi who are being aided by the oppressive strength of the dark side within the tomb is no mean feat. But the Jedi have help. After Atten, Mira, and Baudur reject the Sith Master's overtures to join the dark side, they each receive a temporary stat boost to strength, dexterity, and defense. Time to pass the test. Depending on the player's level at the time, this is one of the last uh, difficult fights in the game. One of the few real weaknesses of KOTOR 2's gameplay is that the in-game combat is fairly easy because players can become overpowered if specced outright. There are a few ways to accomplish this, such as starting as a Jedi Consular and choosing the Jedi weapon master prestige class like our exile the game gets even easier for dark side players after they return to dantooine because they are rewarded with the force crush ability force crush is the violent technique that immobilizes victims suspends them in the air and can be used to crush the victim's body with the force it's not qu quite so violent in kotor 2 doing a large 
uh, doing a large amount of damage and incapacitating the enemy momentarily. It also has a very short cooldown period in the game, meaning it can be spammed against enemies quickly. Light side players receive an ability called Force Enlightenment, which activates the Force Speed, Force Valor, and Force Aura abilities simultaneously. Instead of being overpowered, this ability is more of a life hack because it eliminates the need to repetitively activate each ability separately and having them run out at different times. Of course, nothing in that digression matters right now because the companions are facing down the Sith on Dexoon. Atten, following in Sirk's footsteps, attempts to reason with the Sith Master until the very end, but there would be no redemption. The trio of Dark Jedi ignite their lightsabers, the companions ignite theirs, and the duel begins. The smartest strategy here is just to focus every companion on one enemy at a time, whittling the group down. The companions kept their cool and worked together, defeating the Darksiders in one of the darkest places in the galaxy. Whatever ritual they were performing and whatever tangible effect it might have on Onderon, it's over now. For the trouble, Atten, Mira, and Baudur loot the sarcophagus of Freed Ned, discovering Ned's short bronze lightsaber and some gel-shade armor that provides a high defense without restricting force powers. As the trio emerge from the tomb, they gather the Mandalorians and return to the Daxun command center. Now that the Sith have been driven off Daxun, let's go back in time and talk about the Exile's trip to Onderon with Kraa and HK-47. When the jungle strike team departed earlier, Surik's strike team gathered at the hangar in the back of the compound. The shuttle the Mandalorians had used previously has no offensive capabilities to speak of, and it's a bad idea to bring a transport shuttle to a gunfight. Instead, Mandalore has given Surik the honor of piloting a basilisk war droid from Daxun to Onderon using their shared atmosphere. Unfortunately, we don't actually get to fly it, but it's still cool as hell that they included the basilisk format and made use of the shared atmosphere, both of which first appeared in Tales of the Jedi. In case you've forgotten, Basilisk war droids are the flying open-air mounts the Mandalorians ride into battle. The Mandalorians initially seized the mounts in 4017 before the Battle of Yavin when they attacked the world Basilisk. Since that time, Mandalorians have used them in the Great Sith War and Mandalorian Wars, causing terror on thousands of worlds. These war droids had four legs and looked like armadillos with a series of front-mounted blaster turrets instead of a head and an open space in the back for the pilot. They could fly into battle and then act as mobile walking tanks after landing. The Basilisk war droid that the Mandalorians restored looks a bit different, though. This aesthetic change is easily attributed to the fact that most of these droids were destroyed in the battles of Duxun and Malachor V, and so this one had to be repaired using spare parts. Instead of having four legs, this silver ship had an enclosed cockpit but still packs a heavy punch with four external turrets. The real reason it looks different is because Obsidian didn't like the appearance of the old Basilisk models from Tales of the Jedi, so they updated them. That's their prerogative, and while we disagree, it's still nice to see a Basilisk can fly from Daxun to Onderon via the atmosphere bridge, just like Master Arkaja talked about so long ago. Still would have been nice to control it, though. We get a cutscene of the Basilisk just descending rapidly while avoiding fire from anti-aircraft turrets before landing in the Merchant Quarter. Onderon last saw Basilisk droids in 3963 during the Mandalorian Wars when they launched from Daxun and began a two-year occupation of Isis. 
So the appearance of one screaming doubt towards the surface was terrifying, even if it was just one flying into an active war zone. The few citizens who were out in public scattered in fear of the basilisk, and Vaklu's forces attacked immediately, but were rebuffed and killed easily. Sirk's plan is simple, fight through the partially leveled merchant district to the sky ramp, which leads to the turret embankments, and eventually fight into the palace to rescue Talia and Kavar. It's a running skirmish from the moment the companions start moving toward the sky ramp, which has been overrun by secessionist forces. Andoran's soldiers, loyal to Vaklu, fight alongside Sith troopers, but they aren't enough to deny entry to the sky ramp and regroup with the few soldiers Talia has left outside the palace. The game then moves to a cutscene with Talia and Kavar discussing their odds of survival. Queen Talia is worried as her forces continue to dwindle, but Master Kavar senses something through the force and realizes that Surik is coming to their rescue. Unfortunately, Colonel Tobin is using a Drexel larva to break through the shields and defenses the royalists have erected in the palace. The Drexel are normally flying beasts, but their larvae are massive green brutes about the size of a small rancor. As the cutscene ends, Surik is working with Captain Bastuko to fight through Vaklu's troops and free some royalists who were captured earlier. Waves of soldiers descend on the companions, and HK-47 finally gets to do what he does best. Kill meatbags with aplomb. Basugo's soldiers have been locked inside the barracks, but are able to provide some much-needed assistance for the assault on the palace. In a nearby control station, the last force fields can be deactivated, and the exile takes control of a turret, taking out a few Sith ships for the trouble. With that, the way to the palace is clear. Within the royal palace, we see Colonel Tobin and General Vaklu talking. We'd be remiss if we didn't tell you that Vaklu is incredibly good looking, especially for a game this old. He kinda looks like Jonathan Frakes, aka Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation, to be honest. It's a good look. Regardless of Vaklu's distracting good looks, the two are meeting to discuss strategy. Talia's forces have been pushed back into the throne room and have erected heavy shielding at the door. Tobin says that even with the Drexel larva, it's going to take some time to bash through the shields. Vaklu notes that they are very close to succeeding in their quest to overthrow Queen Talia, but their mission could be undone at any moment. Just then, Surik, Kraya, and HK-47 enter the palace alongside Captain Bostuko and his royalist soldiers that were freed from the barracks on the sky ramp. The accessible part of the palace is laid out with the throne room and antechamber situated in the center, directly in front of the main entrance. The palace also has two wings, north and south, that run parallel to the throne room and are accessible via long hallways to the left and right of the main entrance. Normally, this would mean a straight shot from the main door to the throne room. But Colonel Tobin locked down the system after the companions arrived, sealing the antechamber behind a locked, unbreachable door. Via a comms terminal, Tobin brags that Zurich won't be able to penetrate the ornate door because it's super thick and made of the same stuff they use for starship hulls. So it's unbreachable by conventional means, but that doesn't mean there isn't a key. In order to unlock the unbreachable ornate door, the companions will have to fight through a garrison of secessionist Sith troopers and train Bomas to access and override the shutdown on both the north and south computer terminals. The terminals can't be sliced from other terminals because 
They are on a separate system, and Vaclu's forces have a crack slicer who keeps locking Surak out. There's some good loot in, in the side room to a ton of enemies to carve through, but the player gets some help from loyal soldiers who follow you around and help with the enemy soldiers. Look at that teamwork. The rooms in the north and south wings of the palace take a little time to work through because of the constant traps. One room has gas vents in the floor that will poison the whole party, while another has battle droids that create larger explosions when they die. It's a little annoying. Eventually, Cirque finds Master Kavar in one of the rooms. He says that somehow he and Talia got he and Quintalia got separated, even though they were already in the throne room earlier. It's not really explained how he's there. Uh, Kavar informs the exile that Captain Cadron has a special dangerous assignment that he needs help with in the comms room of the North Wing. Kavar then somehow somehow slips back into the throne room uh, unseen. Turns out Cadron uh, already had the North computer terminal under control and needs primary control shifted to the South terminal, which is guarded by a slicer. When Sirk, Kreia, and HK-47 carve through the south wing, they find Captain Regan uh, locked in a force cage and the Twi'lek Kif working the terminal. Kif is the slicer who helped Sirk hack the starport visas during the first trip to Onderon. Sirk has the chance to kill Kif or let him go, and of course, she chooses to let him go because this is a light side run. Sirk releases Reekin and obtains the primary terminal override code, which will allow her to unlock the un unbreachable ornate door leading to the antechamber. The remaining forces loyal to Talia muster with the companions at the entrance, and Sirk unlocks the door. Within, they find Tobin, who says it's too late, as the Drexel Beast takes the last swipe at the throne room shield, disabling it. Unfortunately for Vaklu, this is about the time when Atten, Mira, and Baldur disrupt the ritual on Duxun. It never It's never explicitly stated that the two events are linked, but they would line up chronologically, so we'll assume the ritual is what caused the beast to go berserk. Otherwise, there's no explanation at all. Without the ritual, the Drexel larva is no longer bound to the Sith, and the creature begins tearing the antechamber apart, attacking indiscriminately. After taking out some Sith troops at the door to the throne room, the Drexel makes a beeline for Tobin and mauls him to death. The companions defeat the enraged Drexel and proceed to the throne room. The throne room is large with numerous stone columns and a large dais in the center, when Surik bursts in, Talia's forces are engaged in melee duels with Vaklu's troops, while the queen and the general fight an honor duel in the center of the room. It's at this moment that Surik has the option to join in the fight herself or sit back and use her power of battle meditation to assist Queen Talia and her soldiers. Surik, deciding to help like a Jedi should, uses her mastery over battle meditation, giving Talia's fighters the upper hand. This is the moment that Kavar decides to reappear in the throne room from out of nowhere, his twin blue lightsabers blazing. Where was he? Why did he leave Talia alone to duel Vaklu? Who the hell knows, but he's here now. Actually, Talia has more skill with a blade than Vaklu, which causes him to duck out of their duel and call in the rest of his forces to attack. Before they can fire on the queen, Surik and her posse arrive and invest the remaining soldiers Vaklu has a short fight ensued that ends with the death of Vaklu's remaining men and the general himself 
receiving severe wounds. With the Valkyrie defeated, the group must decide his fate. Crya thinks he should be executed immediately, but Surik defers to Talia, deferring to her political authority on Andron. At first, Talia suggests death without trial, but Surik talks her out of a summary execution in favor of a trial so that her legitimacy wouldn't be threatened and Vaklu won't be made into a martyr. General Vaklu was hauled off to face a trial where he would be found guilty of high treason and executed for his crimes. So he got what was coming to him and some due process too. A win-win for Talia. After making a decision on Vaklu, Talia and Captain Kadron go to Isis to put an end to the fighting and reassert the queen's legitimate rule. Kraya ducked out and went back to find Colonel Tobin, who was barely clinging to life despite appearing to be dead from the Drexel attack earlier. Kraya uses her healing powers to give Tobin some strength and then tells a very big lie. Kraya tells Tobin that the Jedi have reappeared in the galaxy and are massing at a secret academy on Telos IV, a lie intended to draw Tobin's master, Darth Nihilus, into a showdown with the Exile. Nihilus needs to feed on the force and life energy of Telos IV to survive, which sucks since we just stabilized things on Onderon. After all that, Sirik and Kavar finally get to have a chat. This is the last one before the return to Dantooine, so we're going to skip anything that isn't absolutely necessary from the dialogue with Master Kavar. This is being done because next episode is all about the extended dialogue with all three masters on Dantooine, and because we've already covered a lot of it when discussing Sirik's conversations with Fruk Lamar and Zeskael. The thing you need to remember with Kavar is that he's going to be very receptive to the Exiles story here, but he quickly falls in line behind Vrug Lamar when they gather on Dantooine. He and Zeskael both do that, and whatever bad things you can say about Vrug Lamar, at least you always know where you stand with him. Kavar begins by telling Surik that she's the key to all of this. Kavar sent the Jedi Masters to worlds where Sirik had experienced trauma and suffered horrific loss because he believed that she might return to them, intending to learn what truly happened. We find out that Kavar chose the worlds that the Masters would be exiled to carefully because they were personal to Sirik's journey and the ravages of war in some way. Dantooine, because Sirik trained there, and the wound in the force caused by Malak's bombardment in 3956, Nar because it teemed with life but also suffering after taking in millions of refugees over 25 years of near continuous war between the mandalorian wars the jedi civil war and the sith civil war and onderon because of its proximity to dexun a world that Surik knew all too well from her time there in 3961 we don't know where lana vash was before following darth sion into a trap on korriban kavar suspected Surik would try to make peace with her past and to do so, she would need to visit places marred by war and see the consequences it wrought both on her and the galaxy as a whole. Kavar is dumbfounded when Sarek asks why the Jedi never tried to link up with Atrus at the Secret Academy on Telos IV, uh, but Kavar thought she died on Qatar. That means whatever Atrus is doing, the other Jedi sure as hell don't know about it. Though Kavar's plan succeeded in reuniting them with Mitra Surik, it utterly failed at its second and far more important purpose of luring the Sith out of the shadows. Yes, Nihilus did send forces to aid Daxun, but the Jedi still don't even know what Nihilus is or even what he looks like. Every Jedi who has ever seen Nihilus is dead or named Visasmar. 
The same holds true for Darth Sion, as none of the Jedi Masters seem to know the names of the Lords of the Sith, much less their whereabouts. Like the rest of the Masters, Kavar doesn't seem to have learned very much from Exile, but he believes Surik is key to somehow winning this war against the Sith. In this regard, at least, Kavar is absolutely correct, even though he's not going to live long enough to see it happen. However, Kavar isn't totally useless, because he's the one that starts to put everything together for us. He believes that the Jedi exiled Surik because they were scared of her and they didn't understand. When she came when she came before the Jedi Council on Coruscant in 3959 to be judged, Surik appeared as a gaping wound in the Force, constantly casting echoes, which rippled through the Force and caused a scream that only Force-sensitives could hear. The echo is also described as a type of white noise that distorted the Force in a certain area and made individuals within that wound almost impossible to perceive through the Force. The Council had no idea why or how Surik was blinded to the Force, but Kavar decides, denies that the Council had anything to do with it. Kavar laments the fact that the Council had all these questions, but instead of investigating and understanding them or working with Surik, they simply punished her without learning anything from it. Then, in 3952, the Jedi Masters felt an echo through the Force when Nihilus destroyed Katar, exactly like the one produced by Surik in 3959. For the first time in the game, we get confirmation that not only are Surik and Nihilus linked by the wounds they received at Malachor V, but the Jedi suspect that Surik is another Nihilus in the making. If you go dark side and kill the Masters instead of gathering them on Dantooine, Kovar will explicitly state that some believe the exile caused the cataclysm on Qatar. That's all we're getting out of Kavar is he refuses to state the true reason for Surik's exile without the rest of the council agreeing. Before Surik leaves, Kavar teaches her the lightsaber form Jarkai, which is the art of wielding two lightsabers at once. It's handy when fighting multiple enemies with lightsabers or when you want to look really cool. Surik picks up the talent almost immediately and Kavar departs for Dantooine. Queen Talia returns briefly to thank Surik for her help and give her 1,000 credits for the trouble. With Talia back in power and Onderon secured, it's time to fly to Daxun and meet up with the other strike team. Atten and Surik reunite outside the Ebon Hawk and catch the others up on their successful missions. Rand is happy to hear that the political situation on Onderon has been resolved because, quote, when powerful people butt heads, it's usually the little guy who suffers most, end quote. The companions aboard the Ebon Hawk, the, the companions board the Ebon Hawk and jump to hyperspace. We will take We'll take the time in transit to discuss Goto a little bit more because he's basically an afterthought following Surik's takedown of the exchange above Narshada. He doesn't have a loyalty mission, which is likely a result of the droid's role in the extended main quest line on Narshada. Aside from he and HK-47 hating one another, there's not much left in the game for everyone's favorite massive floating globe droid that impersonates a mobster. Well, the game... Also seems to confirm Goto's calculations about the fall of the Republic and the necessity, the necessity of stabilizing Onderon, Telos IV, and Dantooine. For helping stabilize the Republic and the worlds, Goto will become a mobile ATM, giving Surik 2,000 credits each for her assistance. To be fair, Goto does show up briefly on Malachor V, but that's pretty much it for Goto's story. Just before the Ebon Hawk departs hyperspace, a cutscene begins and Kreia receives a vision during meditation. She will abruptly find Surik and inform her that they must travel to the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine since there is something there that Surik, quote, 
must hear if she is to understand, end quote. Side quests, KOTOR 2 and The Last Jedi. Everyone's favorite segment from KOTOR finally returns for the sequel just in time to compare and contrast two beloved sequels that some fans believe are gross misreadings of the history of the franchise. Alright, since The Last Jedi is super controversial within Star Wars fandom and KOTOR 2 is one of the more beloved games in the franchise, let's get a few things out of the way early on, at least as they pertain here. First, The Last Jedi is Luke's second favorite Star Wars movie. I think it's my first or second, honestly, we're going on this, um, with Empire, for both of us taking the, the spot at the top. Second, KOTOR 2 is Luke's favorite Star Wars story, just above Empire. Third, The Last Jedi is nowhere near as bad as its loudest detractors claim, and nowhere near as good as its loudest backers claim, but it is good. Fourth, there are plenty of valid reasons to dislike The Last Jedi, and it's perfectly fine to do so. Finally, The Last Jedi is a good Star Wars movie that does its level best, whether intentionally or otherwise, to tell a movie-friendly version of KOTOR 2. Sometimes it does this very well, and sometimes it doesn't quite work. And here's the really interesting thing about all of that. We don't know if the connections between KOTOR 2 and The Last Jedi were purposeful because director Ryan Johnson has never called the game an inspiration for the movie. Further, Chris... Avalone has discussed his dislike for The Last Jedi at length, but has never compared his game to the movie that we could find. As you know, we unabashedly love Chris Avalone, so there's something where we'll just have to disagree. Admittedly, some of the connections we are about to discuss uh, do feel tenuous, and some fans who play KOTOR 2 and watch The Last Jedi don't see don't see it, don't see all of them. But at the same time, it's really hard not to notice how often the Exile is called the last Jedi or the last of the Jedi throughout the game. For Luke's first playthrough, he tried to keep count and lost track after it happened 15 times during before getting off Telos 4. Um, it's not dispositive by any means, but it's quite interesting. After episode 8, a coursework that existed uh, many years after... KOTOR 2 was scripted and published. So we're going to look at a few big connections that we may see between the movie and the game and try to present them in such a way that even if you really hate The Last Jedi, at least you'll enjoy this section while mumbling about how wrong we are. So the first thing to note is that these connections are not always exact. There's no one-to-one stand-in for Kreia or the exile in The Last Jedi, though similarities abound, and many of them surround Luke Skywalker. Luke's characterization in The Last Jedi is one of the more controversial aspects of the film, as some fans claimed that the Luke we knew in Return of the Jedi and from the old EU would never act that way. In The Last Jedi, Luke's character embodies many themes and aspects from KOTOR 2. Much like Mitra Surik, he cut himself off from the Force and went into exile for his crimes. Indeed, Skywalker is one of the only other Force Force users in Star Wars canon or Legends to cut themselves off from the Force as totally as Surik did, though his was obviously intentional while the exiles was not. He's not unlike the Jedi Masters we see, believing that hiding is preferable to intervention, even if it means the end of the Jedi Order. However, Luke resembles no one so much as Kreia, at least until the final act of the movie. 
Like Kreia, Luke understands the folly of Jedi teachings that seek to monopolize the Force under their rule. A jaded old bastard who feels like the Jedi out they're both jaded old bastards who feel like the Jedi have outlived their usefulness. Both Kreia and Luke also inadvertently caused students to fall to the dark side. Kreia was Revan's first and last Jedi Master. She taught him many things, including her gray view of the Force and how to leave the Jedi Order. Likewise, Luke Skywalker taught Ben Solo, but sent him down the road to becoming Kylo Ren, when, in a moment of weakness, he he sought to strike down his student after sensing the growing darkness they also they also both make stirring defenses of their students luke delaying the first order on crate to allow the resistance to escape and kreia stopping the remaining jedi masters from harming surik on dantooine on octo luke skywalker's ideology has become a sullen mix of kreia's misanthropic outlook on things and jolie bendo's apathy and isolation as a great jedi but whereas Kotor One presented Grey Jedi's as her as hermits with philosophical differences, Kotor Two and the Last Jedi treat it as something far darker. Kreia is frankly an evil old hermit who wants to take revenge on the Jedi and kill the Force. Luke, meanwhile, is a hermit with differences of opinions, but that goes far beyond ambivalence as he believes the Jedi Order should end with him. Luke and Kreia are Grey Jedi, but in a way that is downright antagonistic toward the order and the force as a whole. But to be clear, they are both old hermits. So if Luke embodies Kreia throughout the first two acts of The Last Jedi, he's the exile for the final third. Once Skywalker interrupts the force chat that Rey and Kylo Ren are having, he becomes like the exile after Rey shames him into telling the truth into parts, Luke understands that things have to change. Much like Surik, Luke was depressed and suffering from PTSD for years during exile and had to get past that pain before any healing could begin. Until this point in the movie, Luke is filled with anger, regret, sadness, and trauma that he still hasn't processed. Not unlike the exile, he only begins to do so after reconnecting with the Force. Luke feels Leia in the Force and his presence causes her to awaken, not unlike how Leia felt Luke on the weather vane under Cloud City and Empire. Apathy is death is a mantra that replays over and over in KOTOR 2, as Sirik found out during the Force vision on Korriban. She had to reconnect with the galaxy and the Force, face her fears and demons, and make things right, even though it hurt a lot. Luke must do all of these things in the final act. Though apathy and apathy is death is never stated in The Last Jedi, it applies all the same. Luke is cut off from the Force and can only help the Jedi, the Republic, and his friends if he reconnects. This is obviously very on the nose, but the movie only had two and a half hours to do something that the game had 60 hours to accomplish. He must confront what he did and what he created in Kylo Ren, and not unlike Surik, confronting her past mistakes on Duxun. He realized that it's not enough to know that you failed or to even admit that you failed. You have to try and make it right. Luke has his own moment where he understands that the current Jedi must die or be destroyed so that the Order can be rebuilt. During the confrontation at the rebuilt Jedi Enclave, which we will discuss in depth in the next episode, Sirik finally realizes that the Jedi Masters will never let the Order move forward. This realization is quite similar to the one that Luke has after his conversation with Master Yoda's Force Ghost on Octo. Finally, both Surik and Skywalker had to learn from their failures. 
go back and destroy that which they had helped create. Malachor V for the exile and Kylo Ren for Luke. And failure is where we get into the larger themes between the two interact, outside of specific character beats. Obviously, some of those points are just window dressing for the larger themes, which is where the similarities become too apparent to ignore. Taking failure first it is obviously one of the core concepts in The Last Jedi. Luke has to understand that failure isn't the end, it's only the beginning. Yoda gives Luke a whole speech about failure being the greatest teacher and how the legacy of all masters is seeing their students grow. Compare this to KOTOR 2, which is a game about failure in every sense of the word. It's not enough to simply apologize. You have to return to the galaxy, revisit the past, and make things right. The Exile's path from Paragus to Malachor 5 is all about overcoming and confronting failure. You can't understand the mantra, apathy is death, without failure. Perfection is boring. Leave that to the gods. To err as human, it breaks our hero worship and forces us to couch them in terms not of gods or even as titans, but as superpowered, infallible people. As Kreia will say, quote, learn from me my mistakes and use that knowledge to become greater than I. That is all I desire. In you, all my hopes rest for the future, for the force, end quote. Failure inevitably leads to one of KOTOR 2's greatest recurring recurring themes and one that The Last Jedi was cascaded for even dabbling in, iconoclasm. We said as much in our introduction to KOTOR 2 in episode 6.0, which we will quote at length here. Quote, this game is without a doubt the most hostile towards the Jedi Order of any Star Wars story ever. It's questionable whether such a thorough indictment of the Order will ever be written again if the reactions to the Last Jedi's moderate condemnations are indicative. Whereas KOTOR... Whereas KOTOR 1 dabbled in iconoclastic thought, the sequel assumes it as a default position. The Republic is little more than an oligarchy to prop up the core worlds while allowing them to exploit the rest of the galaxy. The Jedi Order, a dying sect of battle mages prosecuting a seemingly eternal extrajudicial holy war against another sect who worships the same god differently. Your character Revan from KOTOR, uh, he's a war criminal who was responsible for the deaths of billions before he ever fell to the dark side. KOTOR 2 wants you to know that your ivory tower institutions are mere facades used by the wealthy and powerful for their own benefit. The game needs you to understand that your heroes are little more than children's stories built to hide very real, very awful people who are unworthy of worship, end quote. And Luke is nothing if not an iconoclast in The Last Jedi. Indeed, of the three lessons he promises to teach Rey, two of them are used to illustrate the folly of the Jedi as a venerable old institution. First, Luke says, quote, And this is the lesson, that the Force does not belong to the Jedi. To say that if the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity, end quote. Second, and far more pointedly, quote, Lesson two, now that they're extinct, the Jedi are romanticized and deified. But if you strip away the myth and look at their deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hypocrisy, hubris, end quote. Likewise, the exile learns through various conversations and stories that her idol and father figure Revan was a cold, calculating mass murderer. We will talk about it more in episode 6.10, but... 
Suffice to say, the death and destruction on Malachor V was not a senseless act of violence, but a carefully orchestrated execution planned by Revan. Similarly, The Last Jedi immediately shows us that this Luke Skywalker is not the hero we had as children. He's not even the hero that Rey had heard about. Luke hates the ease of legends and he hates his last name even more. He believes that the reason all of this happened was because of the myth and the legend of Luke Skywalker. He's an imperfect master hiding alone on a rock at the edge of the universe, waiting to die. As we noted, some fans took issue with this portrayal, but that strikes us as strange. Of course Luke is not the same person he was at the end of Return of the Jedi, who stays the same for 30 years. How could you not be affected by your own actions and the passage of time? Why would you want a protagonist who never made mistakes and never changed? One of the biggest problems with Luke Skywalker and Legends was that after the Dark Empire trilogy, Luke never fails. Sure, he loses some battles and Jason Solo falls to the dark side, but those are the rare times we even see him get tripped up. Luke is power incarnate, taking down 10 Yuuzhan Vong while others could barely duel one, but he was still the rube he always had been, rarely learning and growing. But the simple fact is that Luke underwent more growth and maturity in The Last Jedi's two and a half hour runtime than he did in 36 years of Legends material. Though power like that is fun, it doesn't make for good character development and it certainly doesn't fit with KOTOR 2. The game is almost gleeful in its condemnation of everything the series holds dear, including the myths it helped create. The most prominent of KOTOR 2's myths is Kreia, the wise, morally dubious mentor who is like a mother to the exile with an awe-inspiring command of the Force, but her politics are bad and meant to be portrayed as such. All of Kreia's bullshit Randian objectivism that some fans latch onto is specifically described as a Sith ideology. Uh, Truly, the KOTOR games do an excellent job of exploring gray areas, but they were written with the light side choices being the, quote, right ones. Just like how all Star Wars stories are written, probably. We'll talk more about this in episode 6.11, but there is a chance that her libertarianism was intentionally portrayed as the correct and right choice. But as Atten said, quote, all that talk of hatred, manipulation, and standing on your own two feet, sorry, you don't get any more Sith than that, end quote. Cray and Luke are in many ways two sides of the same coin. They are traumatized masters who seek to tear down the institutions that we revere and disabuse us of our notions of hero worship. And in the end, they will both defend their students. By now, the similarities should be apparent, but the two biggest are yet to come. Their force, the force philosophies between KOTOR 2 and The Last Jedi and their treatment of the Jedi Order. As we, epi- as we noted in episode 1.9, The Last Jedi is the only Star Wars movie to describe the Force as a religious concept after A New Hope. Earlier, Early in the film, Luke says of The Last Jedi tree, quote, built a thousand generations ago to keep these. The original Jedi text, just like me, they're the last of the Jedi religion. End quote. Later in the film, we return to religious symbolism when Yoda burns the holy Jedi tree, causing Luke to fear that he had finally lost the sacred text. 
Kotra 2, of course, also treats the Force as an organized religion. The game has extensive commentary on the nature of the Force as a god entity and the eternal holy war waged by the Jedi and the Sith. Kreia wishes to kill the Force because it seems to shape their destinies. Quote, it is said that the Force has a will. It has a destiny for us all. I I wield it, but it uses us all, and that is abhorrent to me. End quote. To Kreia, the Force is a vengeful trickster deity that exists almost solely to fuck with people. Likewise, we are told that the citizens view the Jedi and Sith as almost indistinguishable, just two feuding religious sects. Goto refers to their wars as, quote, infighting amongst these Jedi religious branches. And Atten is far more blunt, saying that to the, gal- to the galaxy, the Jedi and Sith are, quote, just men and women with too much power, squabbling over religion while the rest of us burn, end quote. It's not just that KOTOR 2 and The Last Jedi each treat the Force as a religious entity. Their general descriptions are equally similar. Early in the game, when the gang is on Tila's floor, Brianna the Handmaiden asks what it is like to touch the Force. Kraya's answer is uncharacteristically thorough. Quote, The absence of the Force is knowing what you want to say and never finding the words. It is a chorus replaced with silence, hearing teachings without meanings. It is like having a beloved pupil to whom you have shared everything, sacrificed everything, and then having them turn from you and forget all you were. Feeling the force is like a cloud, a mist that drifts from living creature to creature, set in motion by currents and eddies. It is the eye of the storm, the passions of all living things turned into energy into a chorus. It is the rising swell at the end of life, the promise of new territories and new blood, the call of new mysteries in the dark. Contrast that with the description Ray gives when Luke is teaching her, her the first lesson. When Luke asks what she sees in the Force, Ray says, quote, the island, life, death and decay that feeds new life, warmth, cold, peace, balance, end quote. In the film, Ray's words become a narration showing the Force interacting with different parts of the island. We see plants growing, some animals being born while others die, a rising tide crashing violently against the rocks, and the dark side cave beneath the surface. It's not exact, but it's really hard to miss that Kraya describes the force as currents and eddies, life and death feeding one another, and an eye in the storm hearing new mysteries calling from the dark. Additionally, both the game and movie treat force bonds similarly. To be sure, Ray and Kylo's force bond is more analogous to the one that Bastila and Revan shared in KOTOR 1, but it does share some common characteristics with the Exiles bonds in KOTOR 2. Both the Exiles bonds and the one shared between Kylo and Rey are shrouded in mystery and were created subconsciously. Both bonds allow the parties to see the other to some extent. Kylo and Rey can see the other, but not their surroundings, while Kraya seems to be able to see what the Exile is doing when they communicate. Finally, we arrive at the Jedi Order, the favored whipping boy of both KOTOR 2 and The Last Jedi. In both, the Jedi are treated with little more than derision and scorn. The Order is the last dying remnant of a once-proud group of legendary warrior monks, relics of a bygone age who maybe did some good things in the past, but have since faded into legend in much of the galaxy. 
In fact, the Jedi Order is at its nadir in both legends and canon in these two portrayals. At the beginning of KOTOR 2, there are eight trained Jedi in the known galaxy, which is the lowest number in all of legends by a wide margin. For comparison's sake, uh, Order 66 left about 200 Jedi alive in legends. The Last Jedi is just as dire with only one trained Jedi left, though that number is likely higher because... Uh, because others like Ezra Bridger, Ahsoka Tano, and Cal Kestis could all be alive in 34 ABY. Either way, it ain't much, and it's definitely the lowest amount in the two, in the new timeline since Order 66 left about 100 alive in canon. Regardless of the numbers, both orders also serve the same function in the larger galaxy, which is to say that they are completely useless, at least until the very end. In KOTOR 2, the Galactic Republic still stands, but it's only got about a month left before total collapse. In The Last Jedi, the the New Republic has been destroyed and the Resistance fleet is on life support. Yet the last best hope for each isn't the Jedi Order, but instead a powerful third party who gets involved and ends up acting more like a Jedi than the formerly trained Order has in years. Ray in the Exile, two young Force prodigies who tried to drag the Jedi Order kicking and screaming back into the galaxy against the wishes of their masters. They were the ones who had to break with the Old Order to build it again. Their acts and compassion in saving the galaxy earned each the title and honorific as the Last Jedi, and they did all of that in spite of the Old Order, not because of them or with their aid, though Luke did eventually come around and the Jedi... And though Luke did eventually come around, the Jedi Masters will have the same opportunity on Dantooine, but they won't learn from the failure from their failures as Skywalker did. Ray and Surik both have to rebuild the Order because the failures of the Jedi passed, but also Ray and Surik both have to rebuild the Order because of the failures of the Jedi past, but also relying on the wisdom that those Jedi passed down. We are what we grow beyond. It's not simply those general similarities, each story views the Jedi Order from the same default position. They are hypocritical failures that need to be torn down to the foundations, but not utterly eradicated. One of the mistakes that people make with both Kortutru and the Last Jedi is assuming that they are anti-Jedi, which is incorrect. As we said, they're both openly opposed to hero worship on a base level, which means they are in diametric opposition to the Jedi who are valorized and mythologized in Star Wars above all else, but neither wishes to see the Jedi Order eradicated permanently or even consigned to the dustbin of history. The Last Jedi and KOTOR 2 aren't anti-structuralist tales of how the Jedi are a pox on the galaxy that needs to be eliminated at all costs. Far from it, they are both vehemently pro-Jedi stories of how the Order is necessary to opposing galactic tyranny, it's just that they both utterly disdain their iterations of the order that have been doing, but nothing but that have been doing nothing but hiding and failing for decades. While we spent so much time talking about all the ways the Jedi suck in Kotor two, the story still implicitly endorses a good Jedi order throughout. A constant undercurrent of the game is Cirque's top to bottom rebuild of the order with the companions she's gathered and taught, but with no assistance from the old guard who are useless. We see that the old Jedi Masters are too locked in their old ways and have no desire to cultivate change, and for that, they will die. 
But the new Jedi Order cultivated by Sirk's so-called Lost Jedi will rebuild the Order from less than 10 members in 3951 to more than 10,000 in The Phantom Menace. Similarly, The Last Jedi harshly condemns the Jedi Order for its myriad failures to the point that both of the lessons Luke teaches to Rey are not about learning to control or manipulate the Force, but about the failures of the Jedi. When Snoke probes Rey's mind, he even sees that Luke wants the Jedi Order to die, but that's not where we end up, is it? Luke hated the old ways of the Jedi. He hated what they had become, and he hated that his actions put them through that same cycle again. But by the end of the film, Luke has received some wisdom from Yoda, and a much-needed kick in the ass from Rey, and he defiantly proclaims to Kylo Ren that the Order will continue, quote, and I will not be the last Jedi, end quote. Don't worry, this segment is almost over. Each story even gives the Order proper, proper funeral rites, though with different outcomes. In KOTOR 2, Surik goes before the three remaining Jedi Masters and tries to get them to join the fight against the Sith, but she gets nothing but scorn. Eventually, Kreia is forced to reveal herself and her Sith persona as Darth Treya to protect her greatest student, and in doing so, she kills all the rem- remaining members of the Jedi Council. Meanwhile, in The Last Jedi, Rey goes to Luke looking for answers and finds very little, eventually turning to Kylo Ren for aid. But it it is only then, after losing his last student, that Luke goes to burn down the sacred tree, and Yoda finishes the job, causing Luke to remark, quote, so it is time for the Jedi Order to end, end quote. Killing the Jedi Masters and leaving them in the rebuilt enclave was the burial of the old guard. Burning the tree was a funeral pyre. In each instance, these funerals represent the death of an order that never learned from its failures and had grown too attached to its orthodoxy. The Jedi Order of the Old Republic, so attached to their conservative dogma and narrow reading of the Jedi Code that they sequestered themselves away and let the galaxy burn down around them. The Jedi of the prequels and Luke's new Jedi, never learning from their past mistakes, attempting to monopolize monopolize the Force, and so arrogant that they were blind to the Sith and Dark Side rising in their midst. It just always seemed odd how much flack The Last Jedi received for its portrayal of the Jedi when it mirrored their portrayal in the prequels, regardless of George Lucas's intent. The Last Jedi isn't a repudiation of the Last Jedi isn't a repudiation of the prequels or KOTOR 2. It is a continuation of the idea that the Jedi failed and became the architects of their own destruction and how we perpetuate the sins of our fathers, even when we know better. Now, nothing in this segment was intended to browbeat anyone into liking The Last Jedi. We know that's an impossible thing to do. It's just meant to compare The Last Jedi to KOTOR 2 and maybe present the film in a slightly different light. While KOTOR 2 had 60 hours to develop the full deconstruction that we love so dearly, The Last Jedi had to make do with two and a half hours. In the past, we've jokingly called The Last Jedi a dollar store KOTOR 2, and that's unfair, even if it is funny. It's far more accurate to say that The Last Jedi is KOTOR 2 writ small. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. It's good to be back in the narrative. Next time, we will talk all about the confrontation at the rebuilt Jedi Enclave 
and the immense consequences it has for the Jedi and the galaxy. You can follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.